This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. We're joined by the one and only Dr. David Feinberg, the chairman of Oracle Health. Uh, Dr. Feinberg is committed to making healthcare more accessible, affordable, and equitable. And he's been a storied leader in our industry for quite some time. And he's really passionate about leveraging the healing power of data to create an open and connected healthcare system. He's served as president and CEO of Cerner, now Oracle Health. He's led teams in delivering tools and technology to improve the patient and caregiver experience. He's served as VP of Google Health, president and CEO of Geisinger, where he orchestrated a complex turnaround and uh, really spearheaded their transition to value-based care. So without further delay, David, I just wanted to welcome you to the chat. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Hey, thanks so much, Eric. It's great to be with you virtually. Oh, it's a pleasure, my friend. Well, I thought a great place to start our conversation today would be to discuss the wide-reaching implications of data intelligence and value-based care. I mean, this is a really a huge challenge for our industry. And, you know, I was just thinking about this. You know, I was reading from the dawn of civilization to the early 2000s, you know, humankind generated about five exabytes of data. And now we move forward to the modern day and we're producing that every two days. And according to the World Economic Forum, we're going to reach 175 zettabytes by 2025. So we have this explosion of data, uh, David, and I'm just thinking about what that means for this industry transition to value-based care. So, you know, if we're going to create this uh, technology ecosystem that aligns the entire health system with improving outcomes, you know, we need to have the optimal business intelligence. And that includes, of course, the, the data from EHRs, but we also have to leverage that entire data universe from IoT to financials, claims, ADTs, credit scores, you know, really have that 360 degree view and, and really appreciate really for the first time, uh, you know, what's going on outside of the brick and mortar of the, the clinic and hospital. And, you know, we have this situation right now where 80% of health information in the EHR is sitting there as unstructured notes and it's not usable because it's not discreet or at least not entirely usable. So I just want, wanted to ask you as we start today, can you discuss some of the big data challenges that we have right now? And, and then what kind of innovations are we going to see in the future that's going to help us normalize these disparate data sets and create more robust EHR integration and clinical usability? 
So, Eric, what an opening question. So let me take us back a little, because some of the things you said, I just started popping in my head like, wow. So there's a lot of data every day. I don't know how many zeros exit data have or whatever, but we're doing a lot of data. And still, we have people dying 25 years before others because they live on the wrong side of the tracks. We still have infant mortality and maternal mortality. Um, that's worse than most developed countries, if not the very worst. We still have diseases of despair around depression, suicide, uh, opiate overdose, and intentional firearms killing people that are just completely not being solved because we've gone from a information poor to an information-rich environment. So I think it's really important to not say, oh, this new data is going to solve all our problems. We have a lot of problems that have existed when we had a, a paucity of data, and they continue to exist now. And the way that I approach it to try to get to your answer is I think healthcare fundamentally is people caring for people. Now, sometimes that care is in a professional setting. You see a doctor or a nurse in a clinic, in an outpatient setting, in a hospital, in an ambulance. Oftentimes that care is actually individuals either doing self-care or people in the family or community caring for others. And I think the best way for us to actually use data is to think of it as really secondary. The primary piece is the trust between that caregiver, whether it's my mom or me or me in my professional role or my wife, who's a doctor in her professional role, is based on trust caring for someone else. And now can we get them the right data at the right time so they can make actionable decisions and move that person's health forward? I just think it's really important foundationally to talk about healthcare is about trust, healthcare is about caring, and then the data could be spectacular. What we're, what we're trying to do at Oracle, and you said it in your question, is can we take all these, first, before we even do this, we got to make the EHRs usable. So I, I never like to give a talk about all this great stuff we're going to do if we still have too many clicks for docs and nurses and social workers. If you actually ask a primary care doctor today to do their job, see all your patients, fill out all the forms, do the billing right, do all the preventive screening, it's going to take them 27 hours to get through the day. So it is humanly impossible. Well, okay, we'll give you a bunch of medical assistants and nurse practitioners. Great. Their time now goes to 13 hours. So it's still almost humanly impossible to do everything you're supposed to because a lot of this technology we've given, while it's really cool that we digitize the record, has actually made workflow more difficult and more challenging. So the first thing we need to do is to decrease the amount of time people are at computers so they can spend more time at the bedside. So when we get that usability right, then we have the opportunity, and you said it, to connect it to all those things. Human capital management systems that we have at Oracle, our ERP, our supply chain, coding, life sciences, connected into the EHR, all the social determinants of health so that we can get a complete picture of an individual or family or community. And then going back to my original comments, tee it up so someone can make the right healthcare decision. So I think we have to remember that data is secondary in this business and it's built on trust. And we have a bunch of places we've messed up that we can still start to improve. And a lot of them, you don't even need data, right? A lot of them are very, very obvious where we've made mistakes as far as healthcare goes or the health of our community.
you really, uh, I think, dispelled, you know, some of the myths that are out there, you know, like technology is a panacea and there's a holy grail or the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I mean, it really does come down to data being secondary. I mean, you have to have the technology enablement, but then you have to have a high touch relationship based model that spans brick and mortar, looks at what's going on in communities, engages patients more meaningfully. And, you know, and I think like as an industry, you know, we, we, we saw like this meaningful use program and it was a tremendous opportunity and we digitalized health records, but it really didn't do anything for usability. And I'm just thinking about how, um, you know, that Gartner hype cycle, you know, that, that shows like this peak of inflated expectations, but then we settle into like this trough of disillusionment and we have like a modest production gains that are, that are attained. And so I, I, David, I wanted to ask you just, you know, what should we expect in terms of the reality of like where technology is going to take us? I mean, we're hit, we're hearing now about chat GPT and AI and predictive analytics and biometrics and internet of things and genomics and blockchain. And, you know, how do we make sense of all that technology soup and really create an understanding of like how this is, this technology is going to merge with value-based care delivery to create that sense of enablement that is secondary to the the patients being at the center. I've had a really an amazing opportunity in my career to see healthcare from different vantage points. So I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. I took care of patients um, with ADHD, substance abuse, schizophrenia, autism, eating disorders, inpatient and outpatient. Um, I ran the UCLA health, health system, you know, a world-renowned academic medical center. I went to Geisinger, one of our country's best examples of innovative care, where the provision of care is combined with the Um, payment of care. I had the opportunity to run Google's health unit before coming to Cerner and Oracle. And those different places gave me different um, great lessons. And one that I learned, which when you, with your question was to get adoption of these technologies, they've got to be helpful. So Google, basically I got to Google and they said, either implicitly or explicitly, here's all the money in the world, here are the smartest people, go fix healthcare. And they showed this slide of, I forget the exact number, but let's pretend 15 products in the world that have a billion users each. And then the next slide is, again, I'm not exactly sure the number, but I'm pretty close. 11 of those 15 belong to Google. Right. So so Waze, Maps, YouTube, Search, Android, Meet, Photos, Docs, like, okay, so and they basically were saying, do one of those in health. The thing that I learned the most there that all those products are like remarkably helpful. They make it easier for you and I to find information, to get where we're going, to organize our photos. And of course, there's competitors in those spaces to to figure out how to fix the dishwasher. You know, there's just great information that Google's organized, and that's very, very helpful for us. In healthcare, we haven't done that. What we've done instead is say, okay, we need information from these EHRs to be intraoperable. It's got to go from one to another. And there's been pushback in the industry. I don't think we've all acted appropriately, but the momentum's going the right way. But now you're a doctor and you got a new patient 
in the ICU and you're a hospitalist. So you're coming in and you're going to work nights, seven at night till seven in the morning for the next 11 days. And they go, here's your 32 patients or 26 patients. And one of them just got admitted. So you go on an Epic or a Cerner or whatever the health system's using, and you go to this health information exchange. And we've sort of solved interoperability because Commonwealth and care quality, this person's been admitted other places, and you now have access to their records. But it's 400 progress notes. You're not going to go through every piece of information. When I used to practice, they would bring Manila folders in, like 14 of 14, and we'd go through it. So we have to think that usability, that consumer mindset that Google's and Apple's have, we need to have for our customer, which is that doctor or that nurse. So we need to take that information and we need to put it into a longitudinal format. We need to deduplicate it because probably in all those progress notes, it says a million different times, I'm exaggerating, when this person had their hip surgery and when they got their tonsils out. I don't need to see that each time. So we have a product now called Seamless Exchange that's trying to do the helpfulness in this one space. All the information that's out there on that patient, but in a longitudinal format, deduplicated, and then just tee it up to you when you're looking at allergies, is there any new allergy information that you need, right? That kind of mindset, I think, gets engagement. The theme of your conference and in your question is still this kind of move toward value. And look, I've managed a lot of doctors in my career, and doctors are actually really easy to manage. They're innately curious, they're competitive, pretty smart, and uh, deep down want to do the right thing. You just got to tell them what the scorecard is. So yeah. in a fee-for-service world, if the scorecard is how they, this is the conversation in the doctor's cafeteria in some places now and on a lot of places years ago. So how many hearts did you do last year? Well, I did 200. Well, I did 250. So you must be better than me because we counted the coin of the realm was how many of those units we did. Now we change the discussion to how well have you managed your hemoglobin A1C on patients? How well have you done on your days per thousand of people not being hospitalized because we have good home-based care and preventive and we're putting AI on top of it to do, right? It's a different discussion. We just got to be really clear to the healthcare system what game we are playing. And if we are playing a game that incentivizes volume, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get a lot of volume. If we play a game and are clear on what it is about incentivizing keeping people healthy and out of high cost places instead of what used to be high revenue places, they're going to play the game well. And data there is really, really useful because we got to make sure the game's fair, that we're actually adjusting accordingly. And then you can really use the data to make, I think, pretty amazing interventions. Again, all based on trust in humans caring for humans. Well, David, I completely agree. And it does come down to the the game that we're playing. You know, if we're playing the the fee for service transactional volume game, then it just comes down to, you know, data is a strategic asset, but it right. but it serves best in a siloed capacity. But in value-based care, you know, the more that we can democratize this data and create interoperability in the, the longitudinal health record, the more that we can address you know, uh, these uh, redundant procedures, low, low value care, we could address social determinants. And, you know, we spent a lot in digitalizing our health system. And I, you know, the 21st Century Cures Act is kind of the next step where, 
you know, it's looking to kind of create more widespread interoperability and, and even eliminate some of the information blocking that we have or the, the perception of that um, in industry. And I, I just wanted to kind of see what your thoughts were on kind of where interoperability is going to take us in the years to come in conjunction with this movement to value. And yeah, we're moving at a glacial pace, but it seems like we're picking up a, lot, uh, a yeah. great deal of momentum. 2030 is kind of the, the gauntlet that's been set by uh, CMS to, to move um, uh, Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries into risk. And I'm just thinking like, what is the, going to be the necessary level of data activation and liquidity to support population health in the long run? And then are we going to see the kind of the full potential of fire-based interoperability and in the open APIs that are there to drive a lot of the clinical decision support and care coordination that's going to be needed in that new paradigm in that new paradigm? Yeah. So two parts to my answer there. One, that's exactly what we're trying to do at Oracle. Um, and I'll get that in a second, but and I don't want to be a downer. I don't know that it could happen in the US because I think fundamental will happen first in the US. Fundamentally, you know, at Oracle Cerner, we're the largest EHR company in the world. So we have greater market share than anyone else if you look at the world as a market. What I say to the team is that translates into we have more grandma's blood sugar than anyone else. Now we got to do right by it. Of course, we have to keep it safe and we got to keep it secure. And then we got to make sure that grandma has access to healthy food and that the rest of her family, if they're at risk for diabetes, that we're doing prevention around it, right? I mean, that's what this moral imperative is when you have this incredibly important information. But when you talk about interoperability, well, the reason I don't think it happens in the U.S. first is we built the system around the providers instead around the patients, families, and communities. And really, all that data belongs to the individuals that to grandma, right? It is her blood sugar. And if we started from scratch, that EHR should be grandma's and wherever she goes, it should then light up in that health system. And she brings her information with her. And it's not really that people want, we, we you can press a button now pretty easily through different portals, ours and the others in the space. You can press a blue button. You can get your information, you can get your data, but I don't really want all my labs. What I want to know is what's my bad cholesterol? When did I have my tooth extracted, right? I want information from that data. That's what individuals want. I think it's going to be easier to do in other countries because they actually build health systems with this mindset of value. And we, we're a leader with the NHS with our electronic health record. Anytime we talk to them about this improves quality and decreased cost, they're like, how fast can you do it? Now we have that conversation in the US, US and it's, well, we don't want to decrease our spine surgeries, right? I mean, all of a sudden you get into kind of some sort of hazy stuff. So I think it happens much more outside the US, although we're obviously engaged in the US. And then it's exactly what we're trying to do is we're trying, yeah, I think if you look at tech companies in the past, and I've been part of them, that have tried to do healthcare, it often fails. And I think it fails for two reasons. One, it's often a um, single kind of spot solution, one thing in this big ecosystem. And the problem is the ecosystem is so entrenched and there's so many forces that a spot solution actually gets rejected. So that's one. The other is I think tech comes in, and I say this with due respect, 
thinking those of us from healthcare are just not that smart. And if we just use this app, everything would get better because look what we've done in retail and travel and shopping and banking. And they have all these examples where technology came into industries and I think really, really improved both the performance of the businesses and the experience of the customers. So, hey, why don't you dummies in healthcare do the same thing? Like they come in with that, um, I would say, lack of humility. At Oracle, what we're trying to do, first of all, I have found my new colleagues to be incredibly inquisitive and humble, so really getting the healthcare piece. But we're trying to, instead of do a, a single solution, we're trying to take on the whole piece. And we want to do this in partnership, and we want it to be connected so that it is API-enabled, so anybody can build on this platform. But we want it to be from clinical discovery to EHR to human capital management, to ERP, to supply chain, cloud enabled, so that when a nurse is giving chemo for the first time, we should know from human capital management that this nurse has never done that before. And there should be just-in-time training in the EHR so that nurse doesn't make an error. And that what's happening in the OR from the electronic health record should drive the supply chain so that we create this intelligent, cloud-enabled platform that's open and connected that others can join in on. So that is exactly what we're attempting to do. I think it's big and it's bold. It's pretty exciting to be part of Oracle now where Larry Ellison said, this is the mission of our company. So we have one of the world's greatest software companies literally shifting and saying we are a, um, we're a health company. So that's what we're embarking on. And hopefully we stay humble and hopefully we're right that to really change it, you got to do end to end and you got to do it with others. Well, David, you know, it just seems like it's just it, it's this Herculean shift. And, and, you know, to your point, is it even possible in the American healthcare system? I mean, we've seen transformation of industries happen before. You know, if you look back in the 1990s and early 2000s with the emergence of Internet banking, I mean, that brought, you know, like it, it brought digital channels to every banking customer and it was really transformative. And it seems like in, in healthcare, though, we're just stuck. And the the design, if you look at it from like a the point solution, you know, at um, it, with the, the 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 prototypical EHR system, it's built on a a fee for service chassis, and it doesn't really serve uh, you know population health needs. I mean, and we're seeing now in this movement to value where you know like public health is almost coalescing with healthcare, where we're trying to have a more unified and aligned sense of outcomes accountability and you know we're we're trying to go after some of the non-clinical innovations and and be more thoughtfully integrated in in, in that within the EHR workflow so i i'm just wondering are we ever going to reach a point where we pivot from the current chassis that we're on and then truly you know like what you're trying to do at oracle build this more integrated and a holistic information system that can artfully curate data at the point of care and and really support a lot of the lifestyle and SDOH related yeah. interventions. I'd love to get your take on just the, where were the landscapes going here? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I don't think we could have ever done this had we not digitized the record, right? So that, that was a big lift. It took us about four decades. Uh, no one treated a COVID patient in the United States in the ER and said, Hey, Mr. Smith's chart, I can't find it because Dr. Jones took it home over the weekend. 
Like we, we solved the missing chart issue because now we have digital records, assuming the hospital has an EHR system. No one during COVID had a pharmacist to say, I'm sorry, I can't read this prescription, right? So we, we solved legibility. So not that that's the end all, but having now the digitized record allows us to do the things you're talking about, Eric, which is take disparate data sets, normalize them, pull them together, and then apply on top of them technology that improves human uh, performance, right? Whether that's around diagnostic imaging or whether it's around um, clinical decision support um, or whether it's around who are the high utilizers or who's going to be the high utilizer next year. I mean, it allows us to do that. So we had to get that digitization right. Um, we have. We got to make it more usable. Like these things are a pain. We got to take the pain away. But then we have the opportunity to pull it together. But in part of your question, when you were asking, I was thinking I had this opportunity. Oh, now it's probably been about a year and a half ago when Oracle was thinking of buying us. And I, I presented to the Oracle board. And just to give you the context, Leon Panetta's on the board. He was asking me questions. And I never, I don't think I've ever been questioned by a spy, but he was the head of the CIA. And I was like, this is kind of nerve wracking. And I mean, my team prepped me. And I think I, and Larry Ellison introduced me. And I think, and I'll try to be as humble as possible. I did a great job. Like, here's what we have. Here's the, you know, the whole, I presented the whole story. Um, and Larry Ellison didn't say anything when I was done. Now, the board asked me all these questions. So I asked my colleague at Oracle, hey, Larry didn't say anything. Did I, did I do okay? And he said, oh, he was effusive. He thought you were great. But there's one answer you gave he didn't like. And like my heart sank. And I'm like, well, what was that? Well, one of the board members asked you, so how long is this going to take? How long is it going to take to do what you just said, Eric, to actually pull all this thing together and make it all work like magically. And I said, oh, this is healthcare. I don't know, one or two decades, right? Well, he didn't like that answer, right? So I, and now that I've got to know, I like his impatience, but those of us that have been through this grind know that this is not a quick fix. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's one decade, not two decades. Maybe it's eight years. Maybe, maybe it's like six months, like my new Oracle colleagues want, but it's going to take time because we're talking about really, really important interactions. We can't mess up because people die when we do. We have a big, big workforce that is making decisions all the time about when to turn the patient, when to hold a medication because the patient doesn't look right, when to have a discussion with the family. This isn't banking and this isn't retail. This is actually life and death very often. And it's very, very emotional. We got human interactions on both sides, the patients and the families and the caregivers. So to me, well, I want to go as fast as humanly possible. We don't want to mess up. And this is going to take time, but we could not have done it without a digitized record. I think COVID really helped us because those from outside of healthcare saw how bad the inequities are. Public health got its day. And as a child psychiatrist, as we're moving to value-based care, hey, all of a sudden people care about mental health. That's fantastic. So I think we have a lot of wind in our sail of things going the right way. Um, I sure hope I'm wrong that it doesn't take two, one to two decades, but this is gonna take time um, if we're gonna get it right. Well, David, I, I agree, but there's one aspect of this that I, I feel like it can't take 
as long as two decades. And, you know, that's usability. I mean, we're seeing now that physicians are experiencing just such high levels of burnout and moral injury. I mean, there was uh, a recent report by the Medscape National Physician Burnout and Suicide uh, Report that showed that uh, bureaucratic tasks for clinicians was the number one reason uh, for burnout. It's 20 points higher than the number two reason. You know, I mean, I'm, we're hearing from doctors all the time that they feel like they're glorified billing clerks. They're, you know, they're giving up pajama time in the evenings. They're not spending time with family. You know, we were seeing, uh, you know, high rates of depression, anxiety, even suicidality in the medical profession. It's impacting nurses. We're coming out of a pandemic. So I feel like these, uh, these issues of, of burnout are, are compounded. And a lot of it, you know, just comes down to the, the usability of these EHR systems. It just doesn't support a workflow that um, resonates with kind of that altruistic purpose of why uh, someone gets into the medical profession anyway. And, you know, I just can't help but think about that quote from Leonardo da Vinci, you know, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And, you know, if that's the criterion, then, you know, we're just frankly not there with uh, EHR systems right now for the most part. So, you know, can you discuss a little bit about this issue of physician burnout and how it relates to poor EHR usability? And then what should we expect? in the future with regard to tech-enabled uh, workflow optimization? Yeah, I love it. So uh, a couple of things. The EHRs are doing exactly what they were supposed to do. They're designed to be billing machines. They're designed to get laboratories and physician order entry done. Um, they're not designed to make it easier for the doc and the nurse, as you're saying. And before we get to burnout from the EHR, the real term burnout actually didn't start because of EHRs. It's because I'm in the I'm in the ER and an IV drug abuser comes in and they have an infected valve in their heart because they've been shooting with a dirty needle. We put them in the hospital. We spend millions on antibiotics and fix their valve. And three weeks later, they're back in the ER with an infected valve because they shot up again. So the burnout is I can't get those social determinants taken care of. And I end up, you know, just being a cleanup batter when all the stuff should be upstream. So value-based care actually is the best way to address what originally was the term burnout. Now the burnout has become, I'm a glorified billing clerk and how many clicks do I need to do? And, um, uh, you know, I met with a, a couple OB-GYN residents. I've done, I've met with hundreds of our customers. And when I do, I just round and walk up to the person at the front desk in the ER. Hey, I'm from the software company that makes this thing. What can I do to make it better for you? And you hear the things that people are having trouble with. Um, it's crazy. It's as if we didn't have any UX in our design. So I just remember one where um, multivitamins and iron are given to every pregnant woman. And our system makes you click each time. Are you sure you want iron? It's already in the multivitamin. Well, yes, if I was not a pregnant woman, I would just do the multivitamin. But but anyways, we just make all these clicks. We've gone through a process now with some of our customers who have been really successful. We call it uh, essential clinical data set. But we basically, we're not talking about new technology. We're saying, let's go through the tech that you have. And what stuff can we just get rid of that got added on all this bureaucratic stuff that you don't need anymore? We've seen dramatic, I'm talking 19% reduction in nursing time at the terminal, 8 million less clicks at one of our health systems. So some of it is just good maintenance to make the current system work a little better so there's less pajama time. 
But that's not the future, right? The future has to be where everything is voice enabled and it's done for you, right? You, you should be freed from the terminal. So a couple of examples. Uh, we have a partnership with DAX, which is part of Microsoft now, but and ours is called Virtual Scribe. But let me just describe it and others are out there. It's not quite ready for prime time, but it's pretty close. Like it's going to happen in the next year, I would think, where it's affordable and it works really well in workflow. You go into the doctor and you go, hey, my elbow hurts. It's been red. I've been playing a lot of tennis. I tried some Motrin. It seems to be getting worse. And the doc says, ask you a bunch of questions. You kind of go off subject. You say, oh, and by the way, I just watched the Serena movie on TV and watched her playing tennis. The doc goes, does it move like this? Your regular primary care visit for tennis elbow, right? Just talking. And what the system does is use AI to capture that, not in a scribe, I said this, he said that, but rather in here's why the patient's here. Here's the history of present illness. It knows that watching Serena has nothing to do with your tennis elbow. So that's left out of the history of present illness. So very sophisticated AI to basically write your note. And then our piece is the doctor can say, and I want you to get an x-ray. And, uh, you know, if you're not, and all those orders and everything is done into the record for you. Virtually, it writes it in. So that doctor, other than double-checking the note, spent no time at the terminal. So now think about that in the nursing world, where you brought up nursing shortage, people burned out. You know, nurses are spending half their time at the terminal, 30% of the time looking for supplies, and 20% of the time doing nursing. If I could free them from the terminal, I've doubled the nursing staff in, in the world. I mean, you know, if we kind of exaggerate it. Nurse goes into the room and says to the patient, hey, it looks like you didn't finish your lunch. I see your daughter was just here. Let me check your bed sore. Oh, the IV pump needs exchange. Here's your blue pill. This is for your hypertension. Remember what it's called. Just does their nursing assessment. And you use voice to actually capture all that information, create the nursing documentation, and that nurse never goes to the terminal, right? That type of technology I, I like to say to people, it's still a little clunky, that doctor visit. We probably need to do 50 of them before the system really learns about that particular doctor. It works way better if you're just doing orthopedics and you're just a hip doctor. If you're primary care and you're doing a bunch of different visits, it may take even more to learn hypertension and depression and asthma. But this is in our lifetime, right? I think this is in this calendar year where we start using things that we use in the rest of our life. Hey, you know, Siri or, hey, Google, like where it actually does this stuff for us. That's going to be game changing to me in allowing people to get their workflow done in a very, very different way now, which is really old school clicking data entry drop down screens. It was cool technology 20 years ago. It is not cool right now. Well, David, this other innovation I wanted to ask you about with electronic health records is uh, the incorporation of, uh, you know, health equity. And, and you know, uh, you know, we're seeing now with like the new ACO REACH program, you know, CMS has embedded 
health equity into that payment model. There's certainly more to follow. You know, we have to be more cognizant of how we're serving our underserved populations. And the reengineering of these paint uh, these payment models is really going to intently focus on health equity. And it's been a long time coming. Uh, but we're going to get to a point where these ACOs and these other risk-bearing entities are going to have to conduct disparity impact assessments. They're going to have to have health equity reports to monitor whether institution-level policies are proactively reducing health disparities. I mean, we have to look at some sort of socio-demographic risk-based uh, adjustment that takes into account race and poverty. The HRs in the futures are going to have to analyze delivery of care and examine patient outcomes across demographics, which not only include race and ethnicity, but sexual orientation and gender identity and language. And there's, so there's just so much here that's happening. It's a great uh, historical opportunity. And it's just unfortunate it took a pandemic and a social justice movement to get there. But, you know, where where do you see the EHR landscape changing with this emerging focus on the reduction of health disparities? So let me give a, a couple of examples. One is um, it's the story is actually more of a research example, but I think it's really, really important for this subject. We have a thing called the Learning Health Network. The Learning Health Network is we say to our customers, hey, the price of entry is your de-identified data, data. And in return, you get access to all the de-identified data. And we've had now over 100 health systems signed up. We have 100 million medical records de-identified um, that are part of our Learning Health Network. We've partnered with a company we part own called Elego, which does clinical trial activation. And Oracle has done a lot around um, software for pharma trials. So you step back and you look at our 100 million records. We have three times the diversity on any category of diversity that you look for than any other large data set. So by design, we have designed health equity to be a fundamental piece of our learning health network. A couple of examples. A woman in Osmond, Nebraska, I had to look up where Osmond was. It's uh, up in the top of Nebraska. There's a hospital called Osmond Health or Osmond Hospital. I think the population is 800. This woman had never, ever gotten a colonoscopy because she didn't want one. But she signed up for one of our studies. This is a research-naive hospital, had never done research before. The Cologuard picked up colorectal bleeding. She got a colonoscopy. It's been diagnosed with stage one colon cancer, which is probably completely life-saving had she did not been part of that trial. So be, to be able to bring clinical trials, whether it's diagnostics or medications, to build that infrastructure into the other part of America, not only for the people that have access to the academic medical centers, to me is a great driver to get the foundational and the knowledge of healthcare less inequitable, right? Because we've built it on a system that has not been equitable. And then about driving equity. When I was at Google, we had this app that we did over at the NHS, totally cool. On your phone, a nurse, in the hospital, the rapid response team would be notified if a patient's creatinine went up, no AI or anything. Creatinine went up, it's a kidney function. They go to the room, they do a workup. The time to diagnose kidney injury went from four hours to 14 minutes. There were 30% less cardiac arrest and a 17% decrease in the cost of care. Nothing fancy, just a notification about creatinine. Then we took that same system and we trained it on 70,000 veterans in the U.S. in the VA of 600,000 
discrete data sets per patient. So whatever 600,000 times 70,000 is fed it to the computer and said, now you diagnose acute kidney injury. Instead of going typically four hours and dropped to 14 minutes, like we did with the good UX on creatinine, it went to negative two days. So 48 hours before any clinical signs or symptoms with 90% accuracy, the computer said, this person's going to be on dialysis, like mind blowing, like this new anticipatory medicine. So cool. Now let's take a big deep breath. 93% of veterans are males. So how does this thing then work if it's a female patient, right? And now studies have come out, it actually doesn't quite work as well. So as we bring this cool AI stuff into healthcare, we have to be so careful and say, what model was it trained on? And then does it make sense to work with this patient or this population? It's got to come with its own food label. Don't use in this place, or it's only this good in this place. Otherwise, we will have created a whole new round of health disparities. So I think we have to get everybody involved in clinical trials and discovery no matter where you live. That's what we're trying to do with the Learning Health Network. And then as we come up, and it doesn't have to be us, we hope we're a platform that others join with great AI and ML, we have to be super cautious about when and how we use it because it might've been trained on models that are not appropriate for you, me, or someone in our families. Well, David, this other innovation I wanted to ask you about is this movement towards precision health where you know, you're really focusing on preventing disease before it starts and we're leveraging these technology advances. Uh, in your mind, do you ever see us getting to the point where we're going to have these personalized care pathways and we're going to be able to leverage things like genomic sequencing and, you know, further our advancement in AI and look at biometric data from wearables? And, you know, can you speak about maybe the potential for yeah. precision-based care in, in the population health model? Yeah, so I wouldn't even say potential. We did it at Geisinger. We created the largest biobank program with the return of results of anywhere in the world. So we had over 500,000 whole exome sequences on our patients combined with electronic health record, claims data, radiologic data. And we're able basically for autosomal dominance. So we're not getting too, we're not covering everything, but about 77 disorders could say to patients, you're going to get this and there's something we could do about it, like BRCA, familiar hypercholesterolemia, uh, some of the fatal cardiac arrhythmias. So that was a population-based precision health that then drove specific care pathways for each individual person. That time has come. Now, it's got to be better. It's got to be easier. It's also got to look at um, multiomics and all those other pieces. Um, but I think there will be a time where when you're going to get treatment back to trust and caring, the data will say, look, this medication that this doctor is prescribing has never been prescribed in the last 10 million cases, just like yours. And the doctor may go, well, there's a reason I want to, let's talk about it. Or, whoa, that's a mistake. Let's not do it. I think we really will get to those places where the data is helping us, the clinical dyad, me as the patient and you as the doc, make those kinds of decisions. It also has to be understandable to me as the patient, right? If we keep it in this medical ease, you just don't get it. And you, know, I know that treatment adherence is better when people understand what's going on and are engaged in their care. So it's got to be culturally sensitive. It has to be affordable. It has to be understandable. And then I think you do it together. But yes, I do think we get to a place where the power of that data is driving 
every important clinical decision that you're making with your caregiver. Well, we definitely have to do this all together. And, you know, we're making a seismic shift in our industry, reforming 20% of our economy. You know, my uh, organization, the Institute for Advancing Health Value, we're really trying to create an ecosystem for peer learning and collaboration, sharing of best practices. We're really trying to create that sense of camaraderie and sharing. I just wanted to see if you could share with us in the minute or two we have left, maybe what some of your parting thoughts are on the future of healthcare information of uh, transformation and how we as an industry should be working together to solve some of these pretty big problems. So first of all, Eric, I love the work you guys are doing. And I think you're right that it has to be done together. To me, from kind of parting thoughts are examples of a couple of cases that fundamentally kind of set me in a, my understanding of healthcare. One is a 12-year-old psychotic boy comes in, I was at UCLA, comes in from Vegas, single dad, I'm giving feedback, he's likely schizophrenic, and I'm just talking medical jargon, schizophrenia, anticholinergic, neuroleptics, blah, blah, blah. And my daughter, at that time, our daughter, was just born, she's about a year old. And the dad says to me, hey, doc, are you telling me I need to build a room out back? And I just started crying because like the trajectory of his life and his son's life changed dramatically. And and God forbid it was my family, right? And so to me, it was like, we have to make healthcare understandable. I got to stop talking in those big words and talk about the room out back. Like, what, what are we really talking about? And another was a little girl, an eight-year-old wrote in her haiku poem that she wanted to tie yarn around her neck and kill herself. Now I'm already a faculty member at UCLA at this time. And, you know, in LA, if you know somebody, you can get in. And so these people knew somebody. So they got to see me in three weeks and they come in and tell me the story and they're just distraught beyond belief. And I'm like, oh my God, they should have been seen the day it happened and they shouldn't have to know anybody. So if anybody's eight-year-old is thinking about tying yarn around their neck, why aren't us in healthcare saying we're, we're here and we're ready for you? So accessibility, equitable care, understandable care, affordable care. To me, those are the things that have been driving me. And I think the best way to get it is to do what you're doing, Eric, is to pull the groups together, share practices. I like to steal shamelessly. We are in this one together. Now is our time. We have to get it right this time or shame on us because in 30 years, they'll be going, look at how those guys messed up AI and look at how they messed up the digital record. Like we have the opportunity to do it. So uh, I, I, um, I couldn't be more excited to be part of it. Well, I and I can't be more thankful for you to be a part of it. Your heroic leadership, what you've been doing to really drive access, innovation, equity, affordable care. Uh, it's just been a great pleasure being with you today, Dr. Feinberg. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks so much, Eric.